I got a question uh, from someone about tithing. Actually, it wasn't a question, it was a complaint. And so I thought I would address it, and I kind of dug into it, and I thought, you know, this is actually a good launch pad for um, talking about tithing in general. So well, I'm going to do both, okay? But the question I want to answer is, does tithing only apply to agricultural produce? It's a question that comes up from time to time now and then. It's a small question, but it, it leads into a, uh, a bigger issue. Tithing, when we look at it big picture, is a physical discipline that is intended to teach spiritual principles. Like many of the things that we experience and do, a physical discipline intended to teach spiritual principles. And there's so many, so many layers and levels that I could dig into that I'm not going to try and cover it with an exhaustive list. But one of these spiritual principles behind tithing is understanding that our physical possessions are not our own. I have a handout for you. So I have a handout, and I made this scripture list. I was looking for just the right scripture to you know, kind of seal this point, and there's so many there. But the, the idea that every piece of land, every animal, every plant belongs to God who created them. I'm going to just use one scripture. I gave you a list, probably, there's probably about 20, 25 there. You can read that. Uh, I hope you don't read it you know, while I'm doing the sermon. <laughs> I hope that I have your attention. But uh, it's one of those things that it might be good to you know, meditate, think on. Let's turn together, though, to Psalm 50. And I just plucked one out that I thought was particularly good. And you know, I've heard it used over the years. Uh, it was, you know, when I was taught these things, these are the, this is the verse that was used. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. It's a song, but it, this is the voice of God. And God says in this psalm, for every animal, verse 10, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains. The insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. We very often go back to Genesis, you know, because we like to kind of get to the root of the matter. And so we end up, I don't know about if you've noticed, but we tend to go right back to Genesis an awful lot. I'm not going to do, uh, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I'm going to ask you to just kind of remember and rehearse with me um, when God created humans, he gave them control over the earth's resources. And he, he said, okay, have dominion over this creation. You know, the, the fish, the animals, have rule over them. You know, just read it through and you'll, you'll, you'll be reminded of that. And that's a great task and it's a great uh, responsibility. But God retains ownership. God retains ownership. And you can refer to that handout and kind of, you know, if you want to go through the scriptures and look at it. God retains ownership. Let's, let's go back. We'll go back in time a little bit. And we're going to take a look at tithing in the Old Covenant. Tithing in the Old Covenant. Okay? When God acted to establish 
Israel as a nation on the world scene. And he had big plans for them that they were going to, you know, represent and they were going to um, achieve all these good things. I think, you know, he knew he knew that they were fallible, and but the plan was good. You know, as the scriptures say, the plan was good. The fault was with the people. Anyway, he gave them something very special and very important. He gave them the land of Canaan, and this was this was the like the uh, the you know present wrapped with a bow. This is what they were going to get within the context of the covenant. The territory, which we know nowadays as uh, the nation of Israel or Palestine, the territory belonged to God, was his. Now he took it from the previous tenants, let's just call them tenants, and he granted full use of its resources and all its bounty to these people that he had redeemed from slavery out of Egypt. Go to Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. Now, this is God speaking, of course. Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. It was a gift. God was giving it to them. The gift of the land was formalized in this covenant agreement between God himself and Israel. And we know it as the Old Covenant. Uh, it's also known as the Mount Sinai Covenant because they gathered before God to hear the uh, words of God at Mount Sinai, which is, you know, it was a very dramatic uh, dramatic scene, and I'll use both those phrases to refer to it, Old Covenant, Mount Sinai Covenant. I like talking about it as the Mount Sinai Covenant because uh, it draws attention to the fact that there are other covenants. There's not just an old and a new. So we'll come back to that, okay? With, within God's um, covenant with Israel, he gave them some instructions. He actually gave them a num you know, quite a number of, of things and the instructions that we're going to zoom in on today are about tithing, tithing. And he wanted them to bring forth tithes and first fruits as well. Let's take a look at just one of the places where that's mentioned. In, Le in sorry, Leviticus 27. And I'm, I'm picking that one because it kind of refers to the agricultural produce, okay? Uh, Leviticus 27, verses 30 through 32. A tithe, a tenth, a tenth part, of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, and it is holy to the Lord. Then, he, then it breaks in here and talks about re redeeming them, which is a technicality. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. And then in verse 32, it goes on to say, every tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. Deuteronomy 14 is another one. Let's go there and I'll just read that for you. And again, I, I pluck this one out because I, I think this one helps us get to the, the question at hand. Okay. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. 
says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Each year. So it wasn't a one-time thing. It was every year. The physical act of tithing, the physical act of tithing was um, like an object lesson. It was a physical discipline meant to help them, help us, wrap our mind around spiritual and eternal truths. The people of Israel were to always offer a small percentage um, from the increase of their crops and their herds back to God. And this act would serve as a reminder that God was the true owner of all these lands and plants and animals. Even though Israel had been given complete control over all this stuff, he'd given them, basically, you're in charge of this land, okay? I have some things I want you to do, but you're in charge of this land. But God retained ownership. Let's go to, we're, we're in the old Pentateuch. Let's take a look at Leviticus 25, verse 23. This is breaking into the middle of talking about the Jubilee year and how people couldn't permanently sell their land and stuff like that, okay? Bigger concept, but let's, poke, let's just draw this scripture out here. And it points to God's perspective on this gift of the promised land. He says in verse 23, uh, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. That's how God sees things. I, I, I think it extends to the entire world, but this covenant with Israel was about the, many things, but it was also about this grant of land. So you could say that tithes uh, could be likened to rent, if you want. Rent paid by tenants to the owner, okay? That's an analogy. Don't take it too far. Um, these offerings to God, the true owner, were to come first, okay? They were to come first, and after that, Israel could use the remaining portion of all the increase of the land however they saw fit. It was theirs to use. Um, there's a really nice section uh, in Deuteronomy. We'll take a look at that. It's kind of talking about first fruits, um, but it, it was kind of like morphed from first fruits into talking about tithes, and I believe that's because the concept is the same. Honor God first. The rest is yours. God's given it to you. You can do what you want. You know, within the context of the commandments and so forth and obedience to God. But if we're in uh, Deuteronomy 26, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 15 for you, okay? When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you take possession of it and settle in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you, and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. And then you shall, you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there and became a great nation, powerful, numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, 
subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, and the Lord of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror, signs, and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down to him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. And then it goes on. It talks about tithing. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that you may eat it in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, foreigner, fatherless, widow, according to how all you have commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, and I have not forgotten them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God, and I have done everything you have commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people, Israel, and the land you have given us, as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, some people read these instructions, and they come away from it thinking, oh, well, that's just about agricultural produce. That's all that, that really matters. And um, <clears throat> when it comes to tithing, we're going to, I'm going to expand on that a little bit. Uh, of course, that was the nature of the question that was, you know, plopped down in front of me. Um, I think that that conclusion is somewhat self-serving. Uh, unless you're a farmer, of course. <laughs> but most people are not farmers these days. And uh, this, in my opinion, self-serving conclusion or drawn is that agricultural items are the only thing that are subject to tithing. Does this mean then that someone who makes their trade or makes their living in a trade like being a carpenter, for example, or an accountant does not tithe? So, Let's dig in on this. Let's think about the economy of Israel, you know, this, this, this nation. It was a long time ago, a long time ago. But let's take a look at the context. God's part in the covenant with Israel was a grant of land. I mean, look, I'm simplifying it. I know that. There's other stuff in the covenant. There were laws. There were, there were requirements. There were consequences. God's promise was land. Okay? God promised Israel a grant of land. And he fulfilled that. That's what the book of Joshua is all about, the beginning of that fulfillment. And God would also, along with that, provide blessings, good weather uh, for crops and protection from invaders who wanted to come in and steal the land away from them and so forth. And the whole covenant picture that we have of Israel is built on that foundation of the land the land, okay? And all the good things that this land would produce. And if you think seriously about our country, United States, the wealth of this nation comes from the land. And we've, we've built a lot of layers and, you know, you know it's, it's hard. How do you connect someone who's a computer programmer to the land? Well, ultimately, the 
wealth of this nation comes from the land. The agriculture, the mining, the forestry, things like that. That's where it all boils down to. If you take away the tremendous agricultural bounty of the United States, I think you would be shocked at what's left behind. Anyway, as far as Israel is concerned, this covenant picture that's presented in scripture is built on this foundation of the land and all the good things that it would produce. It would allow them to raise crops. It would allow them to herd animals and so forth. But does that mean that that is all that tithing is about? If you go back and read, read the Leviticus 27 statement that we, we read earlier, you'll see that it begins saying, all the tithe of the land. And then it goes on to list grain and fruit and herbs, I would say as examples, okay? Because this is what comes from the land. But let's take a for instance, okay? Okay, suppose a man of Israel was given a piece of land and this land has this rocky section in it and it had deposits of tin or copper or gold, which the man, his family, go out and they mine all this stuff. Shouldn't they first acknowledge God's prior claim to ownership of all these things of the land with a tithe? Doesn't God own those things as well? Go to Haggai 2, verse 8. I think that's on your list, but uh, we'll take a look at it here in the, in the scriptures. <clears throat> there you are, Haggai. Haggai 2, verse 8. The silver is mine. This is God's voice. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine. So all that stuff that's under the ground, and I would say that this applies to um, natural gas, oil, all that stuff that's under there that we mine, we bring up, God owns that stuff too. He has a claim on that. What about processed goods? I know this is potentially getting a little bit, you know, um, twiggy. But what about, what about processed goods, okay? So processed goods are not direct, you know, off the field, okay? Um, but rather products that are created by human ingenuity and human value added is the phrase we like nowadays. What about stuff like that? Let me give you some examples. Wine. Wine is a processed good, is it not? You don't harvest wine. You make wine in a wine press, right? It's a processed good. What about oil? You don't like olive oil. Where does that come from? Well, you have to make it. Yeah, you start off with the fruit of the land, but you make it through work. What about um, leather goods or dairy products? Now note, tithing on oil and wine are specifically addressed in Scripture. Go back to Deuteronomy 14, if you would. Deuteronomy 14. Verse 23, right after the one that we read earlier, verse 22. And it says, eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil. The covenant language does not give us an exhaustive list of every do, every don't, every must, every shouldn't it gives us principles to apply that we need to apply in all areas of our life. So the scriptures do not contain a 4,000 page list of all the things that are subject to tithing and all the things that are not subject to tithing. 
It simply does not. And it would be silly, I think, to do that. Go through everything that we could ever dream up. How in the world could you write something 3,000 years ago that said, well, if you make your money as a computer programmer, you should tithe off it? People would have had no idea what you were talking about. It would have been ridiculous and bizarre to people. But the principle is to tithe on all that you have. Okay. Uh, more, more things that have popped into my mind. What about eggs? What about milk? What about cheese? Shouldn't they be, these be tithed on as wealth that's gained from the land in some way, same way as wine or oil? You see how it kind of starts spreading out like tendrils into the entire economy? What about textiles derived from the sheep's wool or the cotton plants that you grow? Should those be tithed on? Processed goods made from those things? The language of the covenant, again, was intended to provide a principle, a principle, rather than an exhaustive 4,000-page list of what we should or should not tithe on. The principle was that Israel should offer up a tithe of all the wealth that they were able to generate as a result of controlling the land. God also told Israel that he was the one who gave them the power to gain wealth. We're in Deuteronomy. Go to chapter 8, verse 18. And after warning them about how they will be weighed down with the wonderful blessings and they will get, come to the point where they think that they've done it all themselves, he warns them in verse 18 and says, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. The carpenter, does he not receive the power that he has to swing a hammer from God? The accountant, we have people who've made their living in accountants, as accountants, right? The accountant gets their wit and their understanding on how to tally numbers from God who created them. Shouldn't they too acknowledge that God has given them the power to gain wealth? Okay, now I have gone through a bunch of, well, logical, well, think about it this way, think about it that way. Let's go back and let's take a look at a biblical example of tithing that took place long before the Sinai Covenant. Long before the Sinai Covenant. I, I, I expect some folks might know where I'm headed. But tithing was a practice long before the introduction of God's covenant at Mount Sinai. We have a biblical record of tithing at least 430 years before God boomed out the commandments at Mount Sinai. Go to Genesis 14, verse 16. Let's read verses 16 through 20. Um, by way of background, you know, what had happened was these marauding bands of so-called armies had come in to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and they had raided the place. They grabbed everything that moved and carted it off as booty. Uh, Lot was among them. Abraham went to his rescue. Was, God delivered them into his hands, and now we pick it up. Okay? Verse 16. He recovered, that's Abraham, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abraham returned from defeating Kidulamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Possessor of heaven and earth, the owner of all things. And praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand, who gave you the strength to make this happen. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, or he, then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Okay. Abraham, the father of the faithful, and hold on to that concept, the father of the faithful offered a tithe to God by giving it to the high priest, Melchizedek. Now, the items of which Abraham offered a tithe were not agricultural. They consisted of a wide variety of stuff, possessions, so forth. And uh, all this stuff that he was able to get back from these uh, kings, this conglomerate of kings from the plains of Shinar, and he was going to return this to the people of Sodom. All their goods, uh, take a look at verse 11, um, it says, you know, these four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. So they grabbed all the movable wealth, all the clothes, jewelry, food, people, animals, stuff like that, okay? And Abraham was going to uh, offer a tenth of all this. So when Abraham came before Melchizedek to offer his tithe, Melchizedek spoke a blessing. And I think it's very interesting that the blessing pointed to the spiritual principles behind tithing, the spiritual understanding behind tithing, which came out later in the Sinai Covenant. First, in that blessing, God is acknowledged as the owner of all things. Second, God is acknowledged as the one who gave Abraham, the person offering the tithe, the power to get the goods that he had, the one who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave uh, Melchizedek, the high priest of God, a tenth of everything that he gained from this rescue operation. And the physical act of giving the tithe provided a witness to the underlying spiritual principles at hand, which Abraham knew and wished to acknowledge. Go to Genesis 28. This is a good one. Reminds me of myself in some ways. <laughs> not, I don't want to be, not, not necessarily, you know, I'm not putting myself up there with Jacob, but tithing was one of the first things that I uh, came to a knowledge of before I came to a knowledge of almost any other commandment in Scripture. And, uh, you know, everybody starts somewhere, right? <laughs> most, most people, I think, start like with the Sabbath and stuff like that. But for me, it was tithing. Weird, but this is my thing. All right, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you get, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So here's another biblical reference to tithing that takes place long, long, hundreds of years before the Mount Sinai Covenant. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, vows to faithfully tithe to God. 
A bit of backstory, Jacob had been sent off to a distant land by his father Isaac to find a suitable wife. I think it was also to keep him away from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him. And uh, one night during Jacob's journey, he had an encounter with the reality of God, Jacob's dream. And without going into all the aspects of the dream, you can read that, it, it had an impact on him. He was encountering the reality of God. And it had, I believe, a big impact on him. And it was a, he was profoundly moved by the experience. And what did he do? How did he react when he was so moved? He vowed to become a dedicated man of God. Okay, I am yours, God. I am dedicated to you. The physical act that Jacob intended as a sign of this spiritual awakening and this newfound commitment to God was what? It was to tithe. Jacob vowed to return to God a full tenth of all that God gave him. Now, go back to some of the the logic. At this stage of his sojourn, his journey, Jacob was just like a traveler He owned no flocks. He owned no fields. All I think he could reasonably expect was that he would get a position somewhere and get wages as a laborer until such time as he could save up enough cash to get his own own, uh, homestead or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, But he was vowing to give God a tenth of all of this. Now, you know, that's, that's just my application, how I see it would have played out. Um, he vowed to give a full tenth of all that he received to God. I think, I believe that logically this would include whatever wages he earned until he could afford the fields of his own. Jacob's vow, Jacob's vow is interesting. Again, here we find the spiritual realities that are behind the act of tithing brought out. Jacob acknowledged that God would provide for him. Jacob said, you provide for me. It was an acknowledgement of many things. How could God provide for him if you know, God didn't own and possess these things in the first place? Jacob's act of tithing would also serve <laughs> as a confirmation of his personal dedication to God, okay? Should I repeat those just for, yeah, I think I will. (laughs) Okay, so number one, Jacob acknowledged that God would provide for him, okay? Number two, Jacob's act of tithing would serve as a confirmation of his personal dedication to God. Number three, Jacob's tithe would go to support God's house. Did you pick that up when we read it? I don't know what that meant at the time. Did it mean he would truck all the way over to Jerusalem and give it to Melchizedek? I mean, that to me, that's the most logical. It doesn't go into the detail. But it would go to the house of God, symbolized by this, this rock, you know, which he poured oil over and all this other stuff, you know, as a form of personal dedication. Not only the act of tithing, you know, the, the, the doing, 
but the understanding of the spiritual realities that lay behind it, they were there 430 years before the covenant. It, I think their words show that they understood what this meant and what it represented. The physical discipline of tithing was already in place long before the covenant, and so was understanding of the spiritual realities behind it. Abraham, the father of the faithful, understood tithing, and he understood it to include everything he gained by the skill of his hands, by his own personal example, as far as I can see in the scriptures. Jacob, um, oh, sorry, I mean Abraham's tithing, if you want to just rehearse it, was not limited just to crops or animals. Right? We have that example here. Jacob, the father of all Israel, understood his tithing commitment to encompass all that God gave him, and it wasn't limited to crops or animals. Okay. Why did Abraham tithe? Why did Abraham tithe? Why would he do that? Abraham believed God was who and what he said he was. And God, made, God makes, continues to make, some pretty audacious statements about himself, who he is, what he is. Abraham believed him. And uh, he believed that uh, this God, Yahweh, the Lord, the creator, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he, under, he believed that this was the creator, the owner of all things in heaven and on earth. And he said, if you go back to um, Genesis 14, he said of God in verse 22, and this is right after he's given his tithe, in verse 22 of Genesis 14, Abraham said to the king of Sodom with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth. He had that understanding of who and what God was. And you know, he's linking it, I believe, here into the whole concept of tithing and ownership of property and stuff like that. Um, Jacob and understood understood and believed this important spiritual reality. I don't know if you've thought about it that way, but tithing points you and me back to this very fundamental acknowledgement that God is the creator, and he made everything, he owns everything, and he has given us tremendous leeway, if you want to put it that way, given us dominion, control, and tithing is a way for us to show honor and respect to him. Okay. Abraham was the father of the faithful. When you look at his life, he chose to express his faith in what he did. In what he did. And as the scriptures say, Abraham's faith was active among his works. And his faith was completed by his works. Anyone know where, where, am, I, where am I pulling that from? It's no fair if you've heard this sermon already. James. Let's go to James, okay? James 2. <laughs> James 2. Uh, verse 22. <clears throat> Speaking here of Abraham, father of the faithful, James writes in uh, chapter 2, verse 22. 
you see that his faith, that's Abraham's faith, and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Yeah, he started with faith, but it was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Like, you know, just kind of standing there and, you know, I believe. Yeah, start there, but don't stop there. We confirm our faith by what we do. Okay. Again, consider this. Um, tithing was one of the ways that Abraham, the father of the faithful, expressed his faith. He chose to honor God with all his possessions. And um, I think it's pretty important. You know, you, you go into a public library these days, and if you go to the biography section, you'll see all kinds of books about people. And you might see a book, you know, 500-page book, The Life and Times of Brad Pitt. Right? Am I, am I, am I wrong? I don't know, maybe you don't go to the library. But if you go, that's the kind of stuff you're going to see. Now, when you look at Abraham, uh, we have a lot less information about Abraham. It's pretty boiled down, isn't it? So I think it's important what God chose to have recorded about people in Scripture. Okay? Um, we don't have a 500-page biography of Abraham. We just don't. But just consider that of all the things that are recorded about Abraham... Tithing is in there. It's important. It's something for us to pay attention to. I, I think, well, that's my point. It's in there. And it's important because we don't have a lot recorded about this guy. What we do, we should pay attention to. All righty. What does any of this have to do with the new covenant? <laughs> it's a legit question. It's a legit question. What does any of this have to do with the new covenant? And why, why, why should we care? Isn't that all just done away and in the past? Okay, we're going to take a quick look at this question. Scripture speaks of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And we haven't really you know, delved into the covenant with Abraham. But um, God made a covenant with Abraham because Abraham believed him. God said, I'm going to bless you and through you all will be blessed. All your seed will be blessed, but all nations will be blessed as well, okay? Um, we'll hit that scripture in a sec. Scriptures speak of the covenant that God made with Abraham as one based on the promise of God, God's promise to Abraham, and the faith of Abraham, right? It's a fairly straightforward, simple covenant. And the book of Galatians, for example, speaks of the new covenant as being built on top of the principles of that original covenant that God made with Abraham. Go with me to Galatians 3, if you would. I could probably spend a whole message talking about this. I think this will suffice, though. Um, in Galatians 3, take a look at verses 7 through 9. And here, actually, it kind of goes through the points of the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis. 
but rather than ping pong back between the two, we'll just, we'll just look at this one right here, okay? Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Understand then, speaking to the church, speaking to the new covenant church, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, 430 years later, God made another covenant. So 430 years after God said this to Abraham, another covenant was made. This is the covenant at Mount Sinai when they came before the mountain and there was thunder and there was, like, was awesomeness all around, right? And God made this covenant with the children of Israel. This covenant was in addition to, not in place of. It was in addition to what God had said to Abraham, not in place of what God had said to Abraham. The Mount Sinai was added as a temporary way to deal with sin so that people might draw close to God. We're in Galatians 3, go down to verse 15. Brothers, sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, speaking here of the promise and the law. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depended on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed who was promised came. Transgressions against what? Transgressions against God's commands, is it not? The law was added to deal with transgressions. So what do we find in, in the law? Well, there's a restatement of the commandments of God's expectations, but there's also a very elaborate, I guess, system of uh, sacrifice to atone for sins so that people might have a way to atone for their sins, which we know is symbolic and looks forward to the true fulfillment in Christ. There's also a priesthood. There's lots of rules and regulations about a priesthood. And the priesthood were provided to act as an intermediary between this holy God and unclean people for their own safety. There's also a, a clean and holy tabernacle, later a temple where God could and would be present among these unclean people and could accept their sacrifices. That's, that's what's added, a way to deal with sin. That system lasted for about 1,500 years. It began in 1440 BC, I believe, and was terminated in 33 AD, so around 1,500 years. After that, the reason it was terminated, one of the reasons it was terminated, was because a better way to deal with sin 
was going to be provided. A better way. As we, we see in the book of Hebrews, a better way, a better covenant, a better promise, a better priest. Everything's better. A better way was being provided to deal with sin. And the old system was just, no, we don't need that anymore. It will be redundant. That better way, of course, is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Um, the perfect sacrifice. The perfect high priest. We have the temple of the redeemed who have been cleansed by his sprinkled blood. Right? Now, when the Mount Sinai deal was terminated, um, the older covenant, this old covenant, Mount Sinai covenant, which God had in place, when it was terminated, the covenant that God had made previously with Abraham was still valid. It was still in play, and it's still a part of reality. Uh, that's what Galatians is getting at. That's what Paul is getting at. And the new covenant is built on that foundation. All right? A better way to deal with sin and, and all the other other stuff. But let's just stick with the highlights, okay? A better way to deal with sin. The foundation of God's promise is what it's built on. And the foundation of faith, as exemplified in the life of Abraham, is what it's built on. A faith that expressed itself through righteous acts. A faith that expressed itself through righteous acts. We're in Galatians. Go to verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. It's that same faith, the faith of Abraham, that is operating in our lives through which we receive God's promise. Not a promise of land. You don't get a promise of land. What do you get? A better promise. You get a promise under the new covenant of God's Holy Spirit, which is the down payment on eternal life. It's the power to change. It's the power to uh, become a person who reflects the mind and character of Jesus Christ. So, it's more than that, but just, you know, those are some highlights. So, with that said, and, you know, with tithing in mind, walk as Abraham walked. Walk as Abraham walked. Go to Genesis 26. Very important scripture. I hope that you will commit it to memory and uh, know that it's there and be able to um, apply it in a variety of situations. Genesis 26, verse 5, very important scripture. God says of Abraham, and this is a part of a sequence where he's actually passing the promise along to Isaac. And while he, he's doing this, he says some things, and he says this about Abraham. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. The father of the faithful... The father of the faithful expressed his faith by what he did. And just remember, think of my, you know, library 
of all the things that are recorded about Abraham, okay? Of all the things that are recorded, we actually don't have a lot, but of all the things that are recorded about Abraham's doings, noteworthy among them is honoring God, the owner and possessor of all things, with a tithe. It's one of the things that's recorded about the father of the faithful and how he lived and how he walked. We're in Galatians again. Let's go there. And let's take a look at chapter 3 again. Verse 29. It says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Important. Now, let's go to another scripture. Uh, John 8. John 8. Jesus said something very, very important about Abraham. John 8, verse 39. He's talking with the Pharisees and other Jews, and they are very... uh, they're very proud of themselves and their ancestry, and they believe that that is uh, very, very important uh, to their salvation, who, the, who their daddy was. And uh, they say, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. And that is, you know, in some ways, that is their claim to righteousness. And they're, they're kind of going back, and they're having sort of a verbal sparring match with, with uh, Jesus himself. And in verse uh, 39... After they have said, uh, you know, again, Abraham is our father. He says to them in verse 39, If you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. I think that's worthy of some pondering. (laughs) Okay, conclusion. Tithing. Tithing is among the works of righteousness that God has set before you and me to do. So do it in faith, as Abraham, the father of the faithful, did. Tithing did not begin or end with the covenant at Mount Sinai. There's a lot more I could say about tithing, and I have in the past, and if you, know, you want to get a really good look at what uh, the full teaching on tithing is there's a booklet at the back about tithing. Okay, pick it up, read it. It's really good. Tithing did not begin or end with the covenant at Mount Sinai. Tithing is not a quirky old Mount, you know, old covenant law only related to agricultural produce. Tithing is a way for the faithful and the righteous to show honor toward God with all their possessions. That's the spiritual principle behind tithing.